I really enjoy speaking to investors and business founders about how they're embedding principles of sustainability, resilience, and empathy into their operations. Venture capital investors in particular work closely with the founders of the companies they invest in. It's as much about building the entrepreneurs as it is about building the business. On the show today, I have Alastair Coleman. He's founder and managing partner of Folklore Ventures. They just rebranded. Their focus is on helping founders launch their exciting new ideas and shepherding them towards becoming folklore. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the business of sustainability, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decision can have an impact. Before diving into VC, Alastair was a founder himself, doing the hard yards to launch, build, and eventually sell a software business. He knows well the commitment it takes and the sacrifice to give birth to a startup. And in our conversation, he explained that it's a very human process. That it's not the markets or the mechanics of the product, it's human strength and frailty that makes all the difference. Anyway, enough out of me. All the show notes are on my website at johntreadgold.com. And if you have any feelings about this one, leave a review on iTunes and that might just help other people find the show. All right, here's my conversation with Alistair Coleman. Here we go. Now, your firm's just changed its name. It used to be Tempest Partners, Tempest being Latin for time, but you've rebranded. You're now called Folklore. Why the change? I think that when we named the firm, we really just wanted to get on and make investments and the external positioning to founders and investors wasn't something that really came to mind. And when we started the firm, it really was the time to start a venture capital firm in Australia. I picked the name and... Uh, we ran with it for a long time, but what happened was that founders ultimately had a different expectation for the sort of experience that they would have from the outside to what they got on the inside when they actually came and talked to us and then subsequently took investment from us. And that differentiation in, in the experience really came down to the fact that they didn't realise that we were as interested in early stage companies as we were. They didn't realise how supportive we were of founders and how much we believed in founder vision and also how long-dated our investment approach was. And it just wasn't being communicated through our brand and our identity. And we had a really long think about that. And we decided to not just change branding, but actually change the identity of the firm to more accurately reflect the fact that we are building what we call a long-range ambition machine for the great success stories of our time. We want founders to be building a legacy for themselves. And through that investment work, we actually want to build a legacy for ourselves that we can look back on after we've left the firm and other people have taken over. Great success stories become folklore and we felt like that was an app name for a firm investing in uh, truly transformative companies. Yeah, look, that's so interesting. you sort of um, almost pushing both ends of the spectrum there in terms of early stage investor, but also staying for the long haul. And I mean, look, public equity is sometimes you're in for one or two years, but VC, PE can often be, you know, years, obviously they're private companies. What do you guys call long-term investment? We've defined this as a first check to forever mandate. And I've never really understood the approach of equities investors who, you know, buy at $1, sell at $3, buy back in at $5.50, sell at $7. 
buy back in at $9, sell at $10, um, and then feel like they've missed out. You know, a good business today is more likely to be a good business tomorrow um, if the people are the right people to be running it, if it's got solid fundamentals behind it, if it's got a really powerful mission behind it. And businesses go through all sorts of ups and downs. But ultimately, you know, if a business was good yesterday, it's going to be good tomorrow and we should continue investing into it. And so we don't want to have a, a short-term horizon. Um, you know, we, we call it here sort of for fast bucks. We want to compound our returns and we want to do that over a very long period. I saw some data that suggested that if you had put a uh, million dollars into Amazon's IPO, you'd probably be sitting on about $5 billion now. And so that only happens if you've got, you know, if you really do have a long-term trajectory to your investments. True value in, in startups and true value in companies really doesn't materialise, you know, for at least five to seven years and often, you know, 10 to 12 years for some of the really important companies. So you don't also really know whether you're on a great company for quite an extended period of time. So just trading yourself out of it doesn't do anybody any favours. Do you not need to make an exit to get your return though? You do, but you need to be mindful of what the ambition of, I mean, we manage other people's money and we manage our own money. And so you need to be mindful of what their expectations are. If your goal is to return a fund multiple times over, you actually have to, um, a material amount of ownership in a company and you need to hold it for a long period of time. And things will happen in investment where, you know, a founder might decide that they'll take a, an acquisition offer and sometimes that will be premature and it won't be great for a fund return, but it's great for the founder and we're very supportive of that. But ultimately, the very best companies, you really should try and hold on to them for as long as possible. Our funds, uh, 10-year funds, they have rollover periods. But that should give us enough time to test the waters on whether the investments that we've made are outstanding investments or not. So we've talked about timelines, but what sort of companies do you then look for? So we invest in software companies. The business models behind software are extraordinary business models. They're typically pretty low-impact businesses. They're usually very low capex and very low debt businesses. They tend to be cash flow positive and they tend to be very high gross margin. And they're factors you would want in any type of investment you are looking for in any type of company. But you see it time and time again in software companies and we invest at seed stage and that can often be often pre-revenue. And we want to back founders that have a unique insight. So we tend not to back companies that are derivatives of successful companies that have already been created. but we are looking for businesses that have transformative effects. We have tended to invest in companies that have data network effects, which is every new user, every new customer brings additional data that both informs the product, but actually adds value to other users and other customers. We love companies that have AI uh, that enables product insight or a better experience for the customers. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's lots of financial and, and sort of technical factors there, but in a world swaying towards sustainability and, and stakeholder capitalism. What are some of the, the broader factors that you consider? So we, we map our investments against ESG goals. And so there's a lot of discussion about how tangible those goals are and how tangible they are to, to assessment. But we've done that as a firm because we wanted to have some sort of benchmark. What we also find is that we lean into companies that have really powerful missions. And those powerful missions come in the form of extraordinary second-order benefits that flow from the utility of the product. We have an investment in a company called HealthMatch, which provides an automation for clinical trial recruitment. Clinical trials are 
besieged by a bottleneck on the recruitment of participants in those trials to the point where only 20% of trials successfully have enough participants. And what HealthMatch is, is a patient-centric recruitment product that allows people to provide their details and select the trial that works for them. And for pharma companies, that allows them to recruit people into those trials and to fill those trials and take drugs to market, which are not purely life-saving drugs, but they're quality of life improvement drugs. And ultimately, we think the flow on benefits of providing that pretty simple utility to pharma companies and also to the patients, you know, has extraordinary flow on benefits. And time and time again, if we look back at our portfolio, the sort of flow on benefits, the second order benefits that come from our investments, they tend to have these unique missions and flow on effects that um, are good for the people around the companies and around the users. I don't think we all go out to, to hunt these companies, but ultimately, if you put two options in front of an employee, an extremely talented person, you say, well, you can go and work in an accounting software company, or you can go and work with HealthMatch, and HealthMatch is helping people get into clinical trials, which can save their lives. We're going to pay you the same amount of money. You're going to do the same amount of work. There's a pretty good chance that people will pick the big mission, and big missions also attract more capital, and they also attract better partners and better customers. And so we think it's just good business that we invest in companies that have these second-order benefits and real missions. Yeah, you mentioned that they're, they're not as tangible. You know, it's difficult to, to quantify these factors in a spreadsheet. Do you try to measure them? Well, some things are very tangible. Human trafficking is a very tangible problem. Gambling and addiction is very tangible. So we do try and track them from a governance perspective. Invariably, we may or may not end up on a board of one of these companies that we've invested in, but we are looking at 800 companies a year. We're picking five to seven companies. And by the time a founding team and sometimes a board has gone through that screening process, we tend to have a pretty good sense for the type of people that they are. And, you know, it's very hard to do a good deal with with bad people. And so by the time that we've decided to make investment, we have strong conviction on the governance that relates to that company. We have strong conviction on the trajectory of where that company is going in that product and the social impact that that product might have. And software tends to have a very low environmental impact. And we also veer away from companies. You know, we looked at a company that was facilitating an extended lifespan for oil and gas rigs. We didn't feel like that was something that we were A, excited about, but B, the world needed. And other investors will have a different view and we certainly wish those founders all the very best. I don't think they're going out to sort of do bad, but it just didn't feel right to us. And so you can measure it through objective lenses and subjective lenses and we tend to lean on the subjective in the short term whilst we're making a decision and then you know we tend to do an objective test later on just to make sure in some ways that's sounding very similar to to impact investment would you fit that title would you want to somebody said to me today that a lot of startup investment ultimately could be described as impact investment we haven't labeled ourselves as an impact investor simply because we think it would be intellectually dishonest to go out and say oh, by the way, we're an impact investor, when, you know, that's not core to our mandate. We just want to invest in good people, good companies that have sustainable business models over time, that behave in an appropriate way and have great second order benefits to their products. If that's impact investing, I suppose it is. We don't go out of our way to label ourselves in doing that. 
Do you think there's an advantage in doing that? Look, I think that's just a really great insight. You know, I spend a lot of time on this podcast trying to get to a clear definition of this term that's evolving so much all the time. And I think that something that's really uh, encouraging for me is that, you know, VC firms like yourselves, are, perhaps you've always been doing it, but it's now being more clearer about, well, we do want a good mission. Sustainability is a positive economic trend that, that we're going to follow. So I think in the way that impact investors have, have led a movement to greater transparency, it's great to see we don't even need that term, that eventually we won't need that term because everybody's embodied this concept that there's risk and return and impact. So, yeah, I mean, I don't think that's good and bad, but I just, you know, what this is all about is really recognising that there are broader factors than just the financial to judge a company. And I think at the VC level, it's more present than ever because often you hear the investors say, well, no, we pick founders. We don't pick businesses, right? And maybe that's a good sort of next step to get to because I'd love to understand how you do make that judgment really early on. Do you often, you know, get to a pitch night or something and you're there and you can see the shining eyes of all these nervous founders about to do a pitch do you find you can pick the ones who are going to make it? Are there any signs? I think you can certainly get a pretty quick sense for hustle. We tend to not be the fastest investors because we have a eyes wide open, not fingers crossed type mentality to our investments. So we really want to get to the nub of whether a founder's vision has the potential to be achieved and whether that person is, is a person that we want to go on a decade-long journey with. And that does come out over time. Every now and then you do meet founders and it's immediately clear that they have the capacity to build something and that they have a unique ability to communicate a story, that that story will be able to communicate it, to be communicated to talent. And I think some of that is quite evident very early on for some founders. Um, the, the trick is to you know ensure that there's some longevity to what the founder wants to build because we want to be investing over a long period of time and we tend to not lean into companies which are you know important companies now for something that has a finite limited duration to its offering to the market but to your point around whether it's worthwhile having a label whether it's worthwhile benchmarking yourself whether it's worthwhile even thinking about making investments that have impact it's sort of a funny question because it would be really odd for somebody to come out and say well I'm going to short innovation or I'm going long on things that are bad for people. You know, unless you're sort of deeply contrarian and probably wrong, that doesn't really make sense. And so I think that people tend to do their backgrounding of the types of investor, investments that VCs have made before they go to the meeting. And so they'll self-select themselves out of a meeting if they don't feel like they're the right fit. You know, invariably, we won't see a gambling business or businesses that are exploited. That's often a sort of first filter and then and then understanding who the person is and what their motivations are as the next filter. And you do get a sense for the, the drive and uh, the ambition of the individual pretty quickly. And you've got to work out whether that's the right fit for us. You know, that's looking sort of at the entrepreneur. But then when you step back and try to analyse what makes a good VC investor, you know, it's clearly more than just those financial factors. And that the VC role is unique in the fact that you're so close to these founders and they're often so young and they're just really early in an almost embryonic stage and that it's as much your role to build the business as it is to build the founder. Is that sort of accurate? How do you see that? I think that's really accurate. It's very much a coach in the corner type role where you're working with people who have very real lived experiences in, in the area that they actually want to build a company in. 
but they don't have the experience of building a company. But what they do have is an extraordinary vision and that vision can be communicated to people who want to join their companies and help them build it with them. And, you know, we believe in the power of teams and a lot of the best work that goes into venture capital investment is facilitating the development of the individuals and ensuring that they do put good people around them. And ultimately, if a venture capitalist ends up in a position where they're actually running the company, they shouldn't have made the investment in the first place. Investors are not the right people to build the company. The right people to build the companies are the founders and the operators the founders want to work with. So in Australia today, is it getting harder or easier to be a startup founder? Oh, that's a great question. I think it's getting easier to build a company or to start a company. If the cost of building a product is coming down, you can certainly market relatively cheaply. You can start the company relatively cheaply and you can outsource talent through companies like Freelancer. And there's more capital for really good founders and really good ideas. And I think that there's a lot more open source learning available for people who want to build companies. There's a lot shared knowledge that allows people to avoid predictable mistakes that people who didn't build companies before might make. They didn't have that information available to them. So the dissemination of information online has really removed a lot of question marks for people who want to start and build companies. And and there's also ecosystem players who, you know, will run cohorts, accelerators that will run cohorts that help founders get up to speed and to turn their visions into something tangible that ultimately can be funded. So you know, it's a fantastic time to be a founder of a technology company. And winding back, what was it like for yourself when you were uh, founding your startup? How long ago was that? A decade, two decades? Well, Folklore is another startup in some respects, but my first company started in late 2010 and uh, myself and Mark saw an opportunity to build a company around uh, automating logistics for e-commerce merchants and he had had a similar but separate idea and and even then, I mean, the startup cost was much higher than what it is now. It's been extraordinary how quickly things have changed in the uh, 11 years since then. And did you have the support of VCs? Did you have a coach in the corner? Was there someone with, with sort of EQ skills that sort of held your head in their lap when, when you're in the valley of death? The Australian VC industry, you know, really was in the toilet, quite frankly. There really wasn't any coordinated venture capital industry with funds that were deploying capital. There were some hangover funds from the dot-com era, but none of it really performed well. And there was you know, intense scepticism from the large institutional investors up until around 2015 when Host Plus and First State decided to make an investment. Uh, but this intense scepticism meant that there just wasn't enough ventilation for a venture capital industry. And through the work that I'd done prior, I got to know a number of people who were interested in technology, interested in angel investing and the first million dollars that went into our company came from friends. And that network of people is still a loyal network of people. And, you know, we made predictably bad decisions around how we want to construct the company because we just didn't have enough wisdom. And you always look back at, at the things you could have done differently, but ultimately we had good people around us and some of those people still invest in our funds now. And so those relationships have really been quite fantastic. And I mean, that, that would have taught you resilience uh, you know, going through those challenges, does that help you today when you see others 
sort of going through it and maybe you, you sort of offer them what you wish you had? So part of the reason why I actually started the firm was because I felt the best people to invest in startups were people who had built startups and operated them. And I really wanted to provide a bit of rewiring to the industry and move technology investment in, in Australia in particular away from bankers who had a bit of money who wanted to exercise control over companies. And I had seen that over the prior seven or eight years of investing in companies and just felt that some of the mistakes we made were as a result of just a lack of depth of investor talent and just a philosophical approach that was still evident back then around how early stage technology investment should be done. And so a group of us got together and talked about what type of venture capital firm would be right for the path ahead and what were the tenants of good venture capital investment. And those people started to uh, invest alongside me. I had done okay by then and had been making some investments myself and, and they started investing alongside me. And we just wanted to give founders the best chance to execute on their vision and support them for the long haul regardless of whether the company was performing and certainly not alter the alignment that we would have with founders as they built out their vision. And I'd just seen that too often and had experienced it myself and felt like it was time for a change. Pushing forward to today, what do your days look like? How much time do you get to spend working with the founders sort of face-to-face? Every day is extremely varied. We are building a business. So we spend time on the firm thinking about its growth, thinking about where it's going and bringing people into folklore who we think can add a lot of value to the firm and also to the founders we work with. We're always looking for the next great company to invest in and the next great story to pack. So there's a significant amount of investment work that goes on every day. We are really active in the ecosystem. And so sometimes that's mentoring founders that we don't have investments in. Sometimes it's providing support to programs like the Startmate Fellowship, which is trying to provide women with a pathway into the technology ecosystem. And so we're big supporters of programs like that and working with our founders. On any given day, I would be in communication with probably three founders over lots of positive stuff and and also a lot of the stuff that comes up when you're building a business, just difficulties and big questions over you know, the people that want to hire and all of that makes our days a bit of a hot mess sometimes. You know, we have it within our firm that's our job to support founders and we do that as constructively as we can. And, you know, the firm has to be a mix of people who are long EQ and some of us do a short EQ and long other other aspects. All about balance, all about balance. Um, Look, that's great, Alistair. Thank you for those insights. Yeah, it's great to sort of hear about the companies that you're helping to build, but then also how you're, you're building your own company. And I think that getting a feel for the nature of VC and how it really is sort of as active as it gets. I think that's a really interesting insight. But before I let you go, can you give us a book recommendation? It could be about the VC sector, it could just be something fiction that's on the side table, whatever is interesting. A book that I'm reading at the moment is, is a book called The Psychology of Money and really just talks through the emotional impacts capital has with us and how it plays tricks with us and how ownership plays tricks with you. And and uh, sometimes it's great just to read a book to have a different perspective. You might not always agree with it, or it might be confirmatory to the way you see the world, but, it, but it's good to have a different perspective. And um, so I found that to be, you know, really quite an interesting book. One that I always recommend is a book called The Devil Takes the Hindmost around economic bubbles. And I, I think it's very, very easy to 
loose perspective over time. And the argument has been for probably the last five years now that we're in a bubble and that hasn't stopped people from creating a lot of value and creating a big impact and doing extraordinary things. So just good perspectives come from well-written books and the psychology of money and Devil Takes a Hindmost are two really very good books. Oh, Alistair, you've brought up low yields and asked the question of are we in a bubble right at the end. We might have to talk for another hour if we dive into that stuff. But, but no, we won't do that. I'll let you go. But obviously, yeah, plenty more to discuss. Thanks very much, John. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Alistair. All the best.